Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to CJ Cook. Uh, She's been published in 23 languages. She is a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Glasgow. Uh, And she's got a new book out. It's called The Nesting. It's set in the fjords and the forests of Norway, where Lexi becomes a nanny in a strange new home, and then weird things start happening. Uh, Now it's gothic, and we talk about the tricks and the tips needed to get the atmosphere just right it's so important with kind of gothic horror genre more than many many others we also talk about how to stop yourself getting into an editing knot and why it's the obvious but why sometimes simply carrying on is the best thing that you can do i think you have to stay on the chair you have to just keep going at it and i i I do understand that you know i've i've got some phd students and i've been working in novels for years and years but you do, and, and certainly I think there's a time where you have to maybe put aside a project and, and go on the next one, and, and, and that's fine. I don't think you always have to, there's no cardinal rule that you have to obey and finish a project. But I do think there's a lot of value in finishing a project and even deciding at the end to just, you know, call it a bit of a training ground or whatever and put it aside. More with CJ on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine. It's where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you very much for listening. Happy Advent, if that is such a thing. Do you wish people a happy Advent? Mm, We do around here. We're nice. Happy Advent. You can always get in touch with the show as well using the contact page over at writersroutine.com. Keith Hursthouse has done that. And I thought I'd read it out for you. It's a pretty great, thorough email. Uh, In fact, he pinged me over on Twitter a while back saying he was starting to listen to the podcast from the very beginning that he just found us. Um, And I said, I have to say, kind of glibly, well, you know, when you've finished it, when you've caught up, let me know what you think. And he did. He blitzed it about 100 episodes in a month. And he let me know about a few of his favourites. And I I thought I would share that with you this week. Um, he says Trent Dalton was one of his favourites of all the episodes. Have you heard the Trent Dalton one? Just a fantastic Australian chap. You can't really describe him in any other way than just a good bloke. Um, uh, Keith says that he makes short notes against the episodes that he particularly enjoys. And with Trent's episode, he just wrote massive fun. Uh, 
yeah, which kind of summed up that episode. If you've not heard the Trent Dalton one, please do go back and listen to it. Also, Keith finds that found the Anthony McGowan one really entertaining. Um, how he talked about his unpleasant study and that, and that it would paint him out to be an eccentric hoarder or, or just a mad person. Yeah, Anthony McGowan was brilliant on the show as well. Keith also says that others of his favourites included the Ruth Hogan episode, who gave a good development, who gave a good sorry picture and description of the development of an idea. Uh, and also, he's liked the non-fiction ones as well, from Paul French and, and Pete Brown. They covered different subjects. This was um, the start of this year. Uh, Paul French was talking about murders in old China, if I remember rightly, and Pete Brown was talking about writing about beer. <laughs> uh, also, Louis, he really enjoyed Louise Hare and uh, Neil Lancaster as well, friend of the show. Uh, Keith really enjoyed that. It was refreshingly honest about his method. Um, I just thought I'd share that with you because it's always nice to remember really what we've done. You know, I do a different episode every week and they kind of all blend into one another after a while. And I just really appreciated you getting in touch, Keith. So I thought I would say hello uh, and share that. If you would like to get in touch with the show as well, you can send a message to me over at writersroutine.com. Right, let's get into this week's episode then with CJ Cook, uh, an award-winning poet who writes horror. Well, she's billed as writing horror. It's really more psychological suspense, and her new one is is gothic, really. It's called The Nesting. It's all about Lexi, who has lost her boyfriend, lost her job, so makes a radical change and becomes the nanny in an architect's high-concept home uh, when strange things start happening. You can hear all about CJ's day, how she gets stuff done, how she plans it to maximise her creativity. And we start, as we always do, with what CJ sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Okay, so I, I write in different places, so that's probably a bit, um, <laughs> that's going to be a bit rubbish. But I, uh, I tend to write in my upstairs office, um, which is in a very small space between two bedrooms. So I have books on one, one side of me, some copies of my own books, my computer. Um, I have a nice comfy chair. I have a desk and a uh, place for my hot drink. I usually have a hot chocolate um, and lots of paper where I can print out drafts of my novel to check them over because I think that you need to see them in hard copy. Sometimes I write um, at the kitchen table. Sometimes I write in bed, which is really bad, actually, for your posture. So don't do that. What decides where you're going to write? Why sometimes in the office? Why sometimes in bed? Sometimes on the kitchen table? (laughs) It depends where I'm at in the stage of writing. Um, And, you know, I, I find that when I really need to push on for a deadline, when I really, really need to knuckle down and maybe do some edits... I find it's better to be at my office and my desk and less distractions. And um, there's something about being in bed, though, that's just nice to sort of chill and relax and um, be warm when it's on a particularly cold day. And I find that when I'm really trying to sort of begin a story, being, you know, on a sort of comfortable space in the house, whether it's on the sofa or in bed is, is, is good for that. But when I really need to knuckle down, my office is, a, is, is good for focusing and, and just getting really in the zone how much of that do you think is almost a a Pavlov's dog response you've done you've done writing starting a book somewhere nice and cozy for 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 some time so now you can't kind of break that cycle do you think you'd be any good at needing to start needing to uh, to begin a book maybe on a plane or something 
Oh, actually, you know what? I write everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I, I can write. I can write anywhere. I've got four kids and I've had to sort of be very, very adaptable about where I write if I'm going to get anything done at all. And I remember way back when I was in my teens, I did this uh, screenwriting course when I was 16. I signed up for the screenwriting course and the the screenwriter, and I can't remember her name, but she was fantastic. And she told us all, she was very aggressive and feisty and fiery. And she told us all that she once wrote one of her screenplays while she was working um, at a very high profile restaurant and she would be welcoming guests. And she wrote her screenplay on little tiny kind of post-it notes that she could hold in her palm. So she didn't, you know, she couldn't exactly greet guests while she's holding a big notepad but she could just jot down ideas in between um, greeting people on these tiny bits of paper. And I thought, gosh, if she can do that, then there's no excuse, is there? So that's um, that's made me a lot more uh, adaptable and flexible about my, my writing process. I think if I was too precious about it, I'd never get anything done. Let me take you to your to the office that you mentioned that you do quite the, uh, quite a lot of your work in. Um, you've got your books there, you've got the desk is there anything on the walls? Uh, is there anything around you that provides inspiration for, for the story that you're writing? Well, actually, I, fi- I do have a pain thing in my office, but um, I find that I have to, to plug myself in and listen to music a lot. And that's that's a really good way of getting hyper-focused. So I, I do sort of come up with a little uh, Spotify soundtrack for each book. Um, so I, I have my, my list of tracks that I listen to over and over for the nesting um that that really helped capture the mood so musically i think i'm i'm more inspired by the the music of and i I, it has to be uh tracks without lyrics i can't listen to something that has lyrics and someone singing but i can listen to instrumental um so that's that's crucial if you can give us a a flavor of the some of the pieces that you had on on the playlist for the nesting Actually, it was most of the soundtrack for the TV series The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. It's absolutely that soundtrack. I mean, the, the TV series I find really, really good, but the soundtrack in particular is brilliant. And they do a lot with kind of um, industrial sounds. Uh, there's a real kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a real kind of gritty undertone later in the series that I picked up on. So I made sure I... I went and listened to the soundtrack and that has been perfect for for the nesting but the the next book after the nesting has had a completely different uh soundtrack it's 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 also variable but yeah that kind of really creepy and 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 scary uh soundtrack was was brilliant for this book you say that the the next one has a completely different soundtrack what determines it how do you know what song is perfect what piece of music really really works for the story that you're trying to tell is it something that you discover along the way or do you have a really keen sense of it before you've even started typing I think it's both in the in the way that you know uh, it, it's it's almost hard, hard to pin down but you have a I have a sense of the tone of the book and then as I'm filtering through Spotify I, I get closer and closer to the sort of thing I want to you know that that just seems right for that book um and then when I find what it is that works I just listen to that over and over and over again so that it becomes it's a really good way to actually get straight into the 
to the writing or the editing process, listening to those sort of tracks that have just become so familiar. And after a while, I'm, I'm not even listening to them, but it's just a habit I formed. So it's like a trigger, I suppose. But yeah, with, with The Wildling, um, which is the next book, uh, I find that um, the soundtrack to Inception, I mean, I, I love that movie, but the, the soundtrack I, I just thought was phenomenal. So that has really been the soundtrack for this book. If I were to walk into your writing room, would I have a clue as to the story that you were working on at that moment? Would I find post-it <laughs> notes, uh, a whiteboard, a pin board with ideas scrawled all over it? How would I know? No, you wouldn't really. And I think I think that that is because I, I mean, I did have that. I used to live in Whitley Bay and we had an office built out the back and I, I actually had a whiteboard and at one point I, I used the whiteboard to, to keep me on track with my kind of word count and where I wanted to be and when I wanted to get a first draft finished. But other than that, no, I'm not one of these writers who has an office filled with post-it notes and posters everywhere. I, I really sort of envy and admire people who do that. It looks really impressive, but I think mine is all in my head and all on my computer and all in a notebook. So I do, I do jot down lots and lots of notes and I have a file that I begin to create sort of a plot outline and um but it's very messy it probably doesn't even make sense to anybody uh who who you know if someone was to sort of find my laptop they would say <laughs> what on earth it wouldn't give them any real I don't think it would give them much to go on if they wanted to steal a story or whatever you mentioned a word count there what do you like to try and get done a day well, again, that depends. It's not it's not a regular thing because I have to I work full time and I've got four children and I have to sort of be very accommodating and flexible. So it, it just depends. But, um, you know, when I was finishing up the, the nesting, I I was um, away on a boat in the Arctic and I set myself a goal because I was, you know, there on my own. I didn't have I wasn't work like I'd taken time off work. Uh, I didn't have any housework or kids or school runs so I said write 3,000 words a day and then by the end of the trip I was doing 6,000 a day so that's and that was just because I like I said I had lots of time and lots of mental space but ordinarily um, maybe a thousand two thousand words a day is is doable. Now uh, you've slightly teased the day there which is good we'll get to that in just a second in the actual point of the show but very quickly um, I you have no idea how niche these chats can get. I, I got an email from a listener the other day who wants to know what font you write in because uh, she said that she 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 can't write in Times New Roman, but she could but she can edit in it. She oh. finds it too uh, too formal, too f- forbidding, I, I oh. guess, too intimidating. What about you? Do you have any font opinions? Um, I actually do have font opinions, and I think this is a great question. My font is Times New Roman. And I think that's just out of habit. Um, and I just find it quite generic. So when I, because I'm an academic at the University of Glasgow and I teach creative writing. And if anyone submits something in some sort of weird font, it's really distracting. I don't mind Arial or Calibri or uh, Times New Roman. But if, if it's anything beyond that, it can just be distracting. And I, I do remember years ago, I was really struggling with the novel and I thought, I know, I'll change it all into Garamond and that will somehow make me 
you know, it'll spark the missing element to come forth from this book. And it didn't, but, you know, I, I don't know, I felt that somehow that font would, would, <laughs> would do the job and it didn't. But yeah, I, I just ki- I kind of keep it generic. Um, I don't find times you're going to be, I, I guess I know where your, um, your listeners coming from, but yeah, I, that's my font and I don't mind the others. I don't mind Ariel and, um, Helvetica is quite nice and I'm not so keen on Tahoma, but actually Lexi mentions the beginning of the nesting. She sort of has a little snark at, uh, someone who's written her CV in Comic Sans. <laughs> Okay, well, it probably is going to sound just absolutely like mayhem. But um, like I said, I work full time and I've got four children between the ages of eight and 13. And, um, you know, they, they kind of come first. And um, I'm always trying to fit things around family things and around work things and just trying to have some kind of life balance. But I'm the thing is, even if I'm not sitting at my laptop, I am always writing. I am always processing something in my head and if we have a conversation and you use some cool word like iridescent I will be filing that word away to use somewhere in my novel um, in a way that doesn't sound pretentious but just cool so I, I think that that's the key thing here that writing doesn't have to happen just when you're sitting at a desk looking very writerly it can it can happen at any time or at least you know, if, if you have to be flexible and if you are, say, working like that screenwriter at uh, the, the front of a of a posh restaurant, you can actually find a way. Um, so even when I'm walking my dog, I actually find that the best time to get out in the country walking my dog. It's the best time for me to be, you know, contemplating any plot problems I'm having. And they, they generally get resolved on that, that time. So it's um it's important to to not just sit and stare at a, a screen when you write, but to move and be doing other things. What, with all that in mind, when do you find it best for you to sit down and write? You've it, because you've been forced through many different things to, to 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 do it in quite a lot of different moments every day. When do you find, without being too much and airy fairy when does the energy and when do the ideas come best for you it's a good question I think actually naturally I'm a unfortunately I'm a night owl um I really wish I was a, a morning lark that I, I I hear people getting up at like four or even five thirty to write and I really wish I could do that but I physically can't function at that time um I'm, I'm built to my brain just switches on at about 10 at night and then I'm 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 able to just I think the quiet and the dark um, and all my children being asleep and the knowledge that I'm not really going to get any emails or anything coming through a request. I just mentally relax them so I'm able to write in, in moments when it when you're struggling and, and the words aren't coming, you know, it's late at night. Everything should be going for you. It's dead silence. But those words aren't happening. Um, have you found anything that helps unclog the block, I guess? I think, well, there's there's numerous things. I actually think reading is, is a good technique. It's probably very underrated in terms of dealing with writer's block because there's a thought that, you know, if you want to write, you should write. You should sit and push on with, with your book and try and 
eke out those words. But I find that if I step away from the screen, pick up a book and start reading, somehow it just triggers certain thoughts and ideas that are, you know, it's 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 a weird thing because I'm not like I'm not it's not plagiarism, it's not even necessarily related to what I'm reading. It's just the act of reading, the act of processing a story and, and hearing characters begins to sort of tease out the characters that I'm thinking of and my own story. Um it's it that seems to help enormously. But otherwise I think movement is is key or doing something that's very, very boring. So sometimes I've I've had very good ideas when I've been doing the dishes or I generally hate housework. I find it, you know, soul destroying. Um, so if I, if I go and do some housework, then sometimes I'll I'll actually get ideas that, you know, just otherwise have not been forthcoming. When when it's all, I, I guess you've already answered this question, but I, I always like to find out. Uh, because you're always having these ideas throughout the day, you always said it's it's best to just keep writing. But are you good at switching off and turning yourself off your characters and off your plot, especially for something like a horror? I would imagine immersing yourself in that twenty four seven might be a bit much. Are you are you good at stepping away and giving that family time that that you need when 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 it's required? Yeah, yeah, I, I can. Um, but yeah, it, it it is hard. I think to switch gears like that. I think when you're when you're in the thick of something, then it's it's difficult. I mean, when I, when my kids were young, I, I resigned from my job uh, as an academic when I was it was back in two thousand and eleven, and I resigned to be at home with the kids. Uh, I went back to academia in a different university, but back then I was at home with 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 my children when they were young, and I used to try and write when they were asleep, but invariably. I would get the best ideas when I couldn't write, when I sort of had children around me and, you know, I was at the park or whatever. And that was just, it was, I really noticed that, how um, those ideas would come when I just couldn't do much about them. So, yeah, <laughs> I tried to keep, keep a notebook on hand. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
We're back with more from CJ Cook in just a sec. Very quickly before then, a little reminder, if you enjoy the podcasts, if you think they're worth a few quid, a couple of dollars a month, if you've learned anything that's helped the way that you tell your stories, you can do that. You can help us out. And it's Christmas time as well. Uh, support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You get thanks. You get merch as well. Just little trinkets, I guess. Just little bits and bobs. Uh, to show that you're part of the writing community here. Uh, You've even got a way for your book to sponsor the show. Now, it doesn't need to be a lot, but everything helps. If you do love what we do, if you want to see it carry on, if you want us to keep bringing you these chats as often as we can, uh, you can help out with it. Help make it happen. Head to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with CJ Cook talking all about her new novel, The Nesting, which is set in the fjords and the forests of Norway. We talk about how you can make editing just a little bit easier. Also, you can hear about the nuances of genre and how to write horror and gothic and and psychological suspense a little bit differently. And also why getting the atmosphere right is what led her to set this in Norway. And first off, we get back into it talking about the idea and that light bulb moment that for CJ never really happened. I don't know that it was so much a light bulb moment that it was just a an accumulation of ideas that got me excited. Um, so I, I had thought uh, for a long time about um, uh, uh, this. I had this image in my head of a story involving a guy who had built this glass house, and I knew something was amiss with with his story with his wife in particular. Um, but I, it, it sort of just, you know, sat in my mind for a while. But with um, with this story, I, I had numerous ideas that I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about architecture because my son and I were watching. He's he's twelve now, but at the time he was really watching a lot of these um, tiny house programs and you know build your own home programs. And so I was just thinking a lot about the stories that uh, that you encounter while people are are doing these sort of projects um but Lexi in particular she I think she was the the glue or, or the the kicking point the kickoff point for the story because she came and my mind so fully formed I had a sense that I wanted to write this sinister gothic and very serious kind of story and then she came as my main character and when I started writing her she was very funny and very kind of, um, you know, she had this dark humor that just I wasn't expecting. And so it's a lot of experimentation. You kind of try something and then it, if it feels right, you just go with it. So that was the thing that I stuck with. I thought, no, that I like her voice. I I was so intrigued with her and wanted to know more about her story. So I kept that. Um, and I, again, I experimented with with other things in the story, like the character of Dora, who just sort of popped up in the story and and I thought no that that works. Um so yeah it was it's more an accumulation of these different ideas and thoughts and things that I'm interested in like climate change um and wanted to kind of write about and you can only keep them in story if they if they actually work. Um so that's that's it's a process of filtering out the the weak and keeping the the strong but with this story, there was very little attrition. I find that it, you know, it 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 was sort of there. Um, 
somehow. And I think mostly because Lexi's voice was so strong that she was the sort of driving factor in this in the book. Before that, before you've discovered Lexi's voice, when you've got these things, these different ideas that are accumulating now, what do you need to know about the entire story um, before you sit down and write the first sentence? Um, hmm. I think sometimes I need to know the, the ending. But in this case, I I didn't sort of plot the book. I didn't sit down with my usual index cards and so on and figure out the, the bones of the story structure until I wrote about three or four chapters and they they have stayed as they are right now published in the book. Um, so I think I, I mostly needed the voice to be right. I find that you can have the best kind of plot and, and, and all those sort of things worked out, but if you don't have the voice, then there's just something amiss. And sometimes that is is easier said than done. You know, the the voice has to come in its own time almost. Um, So because I had Lexi's voice working, I knew that 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 was right for the story. And once I'd figured out kind of who she was and got a sense of how the reader would maybe empathise with someone who, you know, she effectively goes and uh, pretends to be someone she's not, she's no qualifications or experience in nannying but she ends up looking after these kids and she's probably the last person they would want to look after their children but nonetheless she she does this um so yeah I think um once I had those first three chapters worked out then I could begin to plot and um you know figure out the the structure of the the rest of the story well let's talk about that the plot and structure I want to come back to the voice Mm -hmm. but Sometimes writers on the show they'll describe the um, uh, the, the narrative of of the story as a uh, a road trip, uh, and you you know where you're starting. You hopefully know where the car's going to go. Mm-hmm. But at what point do you, as a writer, see what's coming next through your windscreen, as it were? Um, uh, how how much do you know about where you're going to stop in between? What road you're going to take? Um. Well, for me, I think that is really in terms of experimenting. I mean, I, I did I did plot this, as I said. I used to be a kind of, I guess what they call a pantser, where I would just begin with a vague idea of a story and, and just go with it. Whereas now I like to at least create a structure that I know I can kind of alter, but I have a, a shape of a story. Um. So, yeah, with, uh, with this one, I just, I had that structure set out um and that kept me on track so that if I was a bit you know caught up with one element of of the book then I could refer to my notes and think oh yeah that's right I had that that great idea and maybe I could develop it and make it a bit more suspenseful (coughs) excuse me if I add in this element or if I you know if I think about the time frame or so on um but that that structure I think is really really important it gives me even a springboard to develop another idea that's maybe even stronger. Now, you said luckily that um, the voice for Lexi came to you. You had a few chapters and then you really got a, a handle on her. For those times when it's not that easy and as you, finding a voice is, is, is so vital to the storytelling, uh, is there anything that you can do as an author to, to get to know these characters more to help you 
dive into their mind? I think you have to stay on the chair. You have to just keep going at it. And I, I, I do understand that, you know, I've, I've got some PhD students and I've been working in novels for years and years, but you do. And, and certainly I think there's a time where you have to maybe put aside a project and, and go on the next one. And, and, and that's fine. I don't think you always have to, there's no cardinal rule that you have to obey and finish a project. But I do think there's a lot of value in finishing a project and even deciding at the end to just, you know, call it a bit of a training ground or whatever and put it aside. But just that persistence is really, really, really key. Just keeping on going. And if you do find that there's a character and it doesn't always happen to, to be the main character, it can be one of the minor characters that is coming across too weak. Um, but stepping aside from the main story and say you're writing in third person, maybe write a little bit in first person from the perspective of the character you're trying to get to know, and um, maybe do a sort of uh, interview with that character so that you can dive deeper into their, you know, their psyche and, and their, their being and understand what it is that drives them. So and I, I do think that if there is, I think there's also a, a, a rule as well that if you have problems later on in the story, you need to go back to the first three chapters and it's usually a problem there's pro there's something there in that very early stage that has caused the problem later on I mean I do like to try and tackle problems as I see them and um I have had you know situations where you know th there's been a an issue or a plot problem that's just it has really mystified me and then I go back to the beginning and maybe it's a character I haven't introduced early enough or maybe it's, you know, the tone of those early pages doesn't match, you know, because you've ha you, you set up expectations in the beginning and if something isn't working, maybe it's because those expectations aren't quite accurate, that you've you've taken a bit of a tangent with the story and it's it's starting to go down a different route. And and again, I think that can just be, you know, if, if you end up experimenting and something is really working better than the story you set up, then it is a case of going back to the beginning and thinking, right, I'm going to to change this. But I have to say, I have, you know, I've caught myself in all kinds of knots with editing where I've deleted something and then I've put it back in and then deleted it again and put it back in. So it's, it's a good idea to, instead of deleting, to... Uh, hit control x and then paste it into a new document so you still have or you can use track changes if you're using word um but in other words not to delete forever whatever it was you were working on um that you know because you can you can be in a, in a particular mood one day and think no i need to delete that whole scene but then you wake up the next day and think actually there was nothing wrong with that scene <laughs> it was fine um so yeah the, there, there's um there's a real process of experimentation to it I think that is is so crucial you're the first I guess defined horror author that I've spoken to on the show so um what's kind of the key to, to writing horror that makes it different from a, a standard thriller now uh because there are there are many horror books there are, there are many horror stories and I would imagine it's quite easy to fall down cliche or to tell the same story that someone else has told. Uh, what for you? What's the key to to writing it? 
it depends on your on your distinction of of um what constitutes horror but at least for me that i i felt that that this book was was gothic and um the distinction for me between gothic suspense or gothic horror and psychological suspense which was what my previous books were defined as um is to do with for me the relationship between uh despair and and the the gothic and i think you know to, to use an example my previous book in the u.s was i know my name and that was psychological suspense and the character the main character there is dealing with um complex trauma and although it's not an easy path there is a kind of a pathway forward you know she she can um she she does and and, and can seek healing and and uh counseling and and therapy that that will that will help her cope but for me right now in the global moment you know with with climate crisis and obviously now coronavirus and even the, the political landscape you know that we have issues that we're dealing with as a as a global society that don't seem to have a solution um or at least the data is very depressing and very uh scary actually and when I was researching climate change, you know, and you have these these predictions of, of, of where the world is heading and so on, it's it's just it's beyond words and you don't even know how to begin to depict that. It's it's beyond language, it's beyond any kind of you can't capture it. And that kind of um despair, I suppose, for me is is really unique to gothic fiction or or, you know, th- that genre whereby, you know, there's um this surreal element to the gothic it it is interested in that um this in-between space between reality and and fantasy this emotional experience of of loss and a you know a situation in which there are no easy answers no easy solutions and maybe no solutions whatsoever um so and i think that that's why i think that the gothic is very much the genre of the moment because you know that that experience of a surreal situation that lies outside logic even and lies outside time is um i think what a lot of us are experiencing right now you're doing that with words on a page now uh, gothic is all about well, quite a heavy amount of it is the atmosphere, isn't it? As soon as you say the word gothic, it, it, it evokes a, a certain atmosphere in your mind, How, and especially when you're you're setting this in the in the fjords and in the in the forests of of Norway, that does it as well. How are you capturing that sense of place, that that foreboding sense of atmosphere, using words? Yeah, so um, that that atmosphere was really important, I think, here. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I chose to set it in Norway. Um, and for me, you know, I hadn't I hadn't actually been to Norway before I started writing, but I, I did go and I, I found it to be a place that is 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 beautiful but also very raw and savage and hostile and not it doesn't seem a space that humans should actually exist in. It seems to be a space that, you know, those kind of uh creatures, yetis and and, and things that are just built to be able to survive the dark and the cold and the you know the really rugged terrain that that's that's where they they live um so yeah that that 
the atmosphere of Norway was 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 really important. But I think also I was interested in, in the Arctic and and how visible climate change is there, which is why I wanted to go because although it's it's a quite a light thread in the book, I think, but for me it was it was very important that that thread about climate change and um and mother nature and so on. Um but but Norway just for me, even as a society is so progressive and I was really attracted to that in terms of how, you know, they're the happiest people in the world according to some statistics, even though it is cold and dark. So they're obviously doing something right. Yeah, but Norway to me was essential to capture that gothicness in in the book. And lastly, when you're writing gothic thriller, horror, just when you're writing this, it's important that even though, as by definition, you're always trying to write something novel. Um, but writers, uh, readers, sorry, of this expect certain things. How much thought did you give to beats, things that had to happen, maybe twists that needed to come along the way, moments of shockingness? How much thought did you give to those beats while you were uh, plotting along the way? Um, uh, quite a bit actually. Um, and I, I, I don't follow a formula or, you know, anything like that, but I have a, a sense. And I think we, as readers, we all have a sense of, of the shape of a story and, and, and how it should it look. And, uh, and I, th- I suppose that's why sometimes people feel a book is quiet or, you know, it's dull because those beats maybe don't happen where they sense they should happen. So it was it was an intuitive approach that way that I felt there does need to be a character arc, there does need to be turning points in the story. And when I teach my students, I, I kind of get them to think about the rising scale of tension, that there does need to be a driving sense of tension that your reader needs to be turning those pages because they want to know what's happening. And that's not always, you know, to do with the very explicit or avert uh, reasons that you would think you would keep someone flicking the pages, you know, um, it, it can be to do with a, a relationship as well. And I'm really interested in, in relationships. I know that maybe that's not a particular trope of, of the Gothic, but at least in this story, for me, one of the, the key stories and one of the things that kept me writing was the relationship between Lexi and Gaia. I was so invested in that relationship because I felt, you know, I understood that both of these characters have gone through terrible, terrible things. And I just really, my heart bled for them. And I wanted to know, how, you know, how is this, how am I to resolve this? Are they going to be together or, or, or are they not? How, how can a little girl like Gaia, who's six and she's lost her mom, um, you know, what a, what a, absolutely horrific thing to happen her father is is good intentioned but he's he's just staggering through his own grief and he doesn't know really how to cope with his little girls and she's sort of lost um so how's Gaia going to manage through this and I was just so invested in that and in their relationship and how they could be good for each other and that was what kept me writing and hopefully that comes through that it keeps the the reader turning the pages um, as a, you know, it's a it's a source of tension as well. 
And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to CJ Cook for coming on the show. Uh, you can get a copy of her brand new book, The Nesting, by using the link that is on your podcast notes wherever you're listening to this and over at writersroutine.com as well. While you're on the website, it's a brilliant place for you to get in touch. Just click on the contact page. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling kind over the Christmas period, you can always help us out and support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Now, next week, uh, something a little bit different to gothic horror. Uh, We're talking uh, to Chevelle Pounder all about her new Christmas kids book, uh, Tinsel, which is about Blanche Claus. Uh, It's a really fun one, properly festive as well. We'll get into that next week on Writer's Routine. I will see you then. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.